0: Welcome back to The Thing About Wildlife in a nutshell, where you will hear a bite-sized story from our guest wildlife first time in their field. Our lives among nature tend to be a string of funny, intimidating, or simply absurd anecdotes. And I'm going to be bringing these to you through some wonderfully diverse and fascinating voices. In today's episode, will be listening to a conversation I had with the spirited man of the mountains, Muneeb Kanyari, who has just emerged from having completed his fascinating doctoral work in the Himalayas. He did his PhD from the University of Bristol and has been associated with the High Altitudes Program at the Nature Conservation Foundation as a research scholar for quite some time now. His work focuses on the ungulates of the mountains, how they survive, how they interact, livestock and even their health in the high-up-cold deserts. Conversation also took us towards the concept of conservation optimism, which is something Muneet has come to hold quite close to heart. Here he is now on The Thing About Himalayan ungulates. Aniv, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Hi, Shika. It's lovely to be here. I'm so glad to be speaking to you uh, about everything uh, that I love about the mountains.
0: Yeah, I know I've been really excited to talk to you because you're someone who's had such a wealth of experience in a landscape that we don't talk a lot about. It's you know it's also when you think about the high altitudes and you think about mountain systems it's very romantic and it, you know it's romanticized a lot and it's often considered to be nothing much more than a tourist destination but of course there's so much more going on there. So I'm very excited to unpack all of that with you.
1: I'm excited to be here.
0: So let's let's start right at the top about just how you got interested in these systems you know what got you started what were your early motivations influences that have led you to spending so much time in these places which actually are not easy places to work in and they're actually also harsh climates harsh landscapes but you're, you're sticking with it so tell us a little bit about that
1: sure sure so uh, for those of uh the the people that don't know me, I mean, I was born in in Kashmir, um, but at a very young age, you know, because of all the troubles uh, of the place, I had to to shift, our family shifted to to Mumbai. But I very vividly remember, like, growing up uh, in the mountains, you know, I mean, this is going to sound all nostalgic and romantic, but, you know, some part of it, (laughs) that is really true, you know, so that memory of the mountains uh, always stayed with me, really. And I remember, you know, some of my earliest memories were, like, walking through the mountains with my father, in particular, he was someone who really loved like trekking, fishing, the outdoors in general. So that really was, I would say, like the seed of, you know, just the love uh, for the mountains. Um, and whenever I left, uh, you know, India, luckily I was privileged to to study abroad for my bachelor's. And uh, after that, for my graduate studies, like I would always be reminded of the mountains really. It made me feel like who I am, you know, like it just reminded me of who I am, uh, who we were. And actually, you know, a strange way, you know, leaving Kashmir felt like, you know, we were losing a part of who we were, but then the mountains reminded me of that. You know, so it always pulled uh, me. I mean, I had bits and pieces of uh, trial and error of working in different landscapes and every landscape is beautiful, right? But I never really felt that connection of, look, this is where I want to be. Uh, So yeah, that's where I think my motivation for working in the mountains especially the high higher himalayas where i am uh, comes from
0: yeah. this sense of of space and place always seems to pull a lot of people from our field towards certain places and uh, i think even in our last season we had a wonderful conversation with uh, narayan sharma where we were just discussing how important that can be and it's uh, it's great to hear just you know another example of uh, you know this being true And so let's also talk a little bit about all of the species that you have ended up working with in these landscapes, because the Himalayan landscape is so vast. At first glance, perhaps it seems like there's nothing much there, but you look closer and there's just a ton of life. And uh, so, and you ended up in some way or the other working with many of these species. So tell us a little bit about that as well.
1: Yeah. So I have lots of my friends that come to the mountains or, you know, they see pictures and then, you know, the the classical comment is like, oh, these mountains are so like homogenous, right? Like, oh, compared to like a tropical forest and and whatnot. And I'm not comparing any of that. But I always felt like, no, like I wanted to get across the fact that there's so many literal and figurative layers to the mountains. And no group of animal for me symbolizes this diversity of both the mountains and life. Uh, as mountain ungulates, you know, these are hoofed mammals, uh, generally wild sheep and goat uh, of the family caprini. So they're, as, as I said, you know, sort of the wild ancestors to our domestic sheep and goat. And there's actually a variety of them uh, across the world, but particularly in India and particularly in sort of the, the Ladakh, uh, higher Ladakh, higher Himachal, Kashmir axis, we have probably one of the most diverse assemblages of these mountain ungulates. And what I mean by that is, you know, again, going back to the whole idea of like just looking at the mountain and being like, oh, this is one homogenous landscape. It isn't because there are these like areas that are very rugged and sort of, you know, very, very steep. And you have certain mountain ungulates, like the Ibex, which is a pure goat, you know, loving those cliffy areas. You know, I couldn't even stand there, you know, or even think about standing there, right? And then you have these other parts of the mountains, there are these vast rolling meadows, you know, that you can sort of see for kilometers, like literally kilometers, right. And those you could sort of, you know, ride a horse on or even sometimes a car at a plateau, right. And then you have something like the Argali, which is the wild sheep. Loving those areas, and an ibex would never be able to live there, you know. So, so there's so much variety, and then there's like all sorts of other mountain ungulates that live in different, different sort of landscapes uh, that the mountains provide them. So, yeah, I mean, my my research uh, and my love for the mountain really stems from these mountain ungulates. I do think they're like the symbol uh, of the mountains, Uh, and yeah, there's they're, they're just. Inspiring to look at, they're beautiful and they're ecologically important. So that's what I would say about you know about them in general.
0: You've done such a wonderful job of bringing in your emotional and scientific together (laughs) right at the end. I
1: I need to get that across.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you know that also brings me to um, you yourself in many ways are. As agile as a mountain goat, right? I know that you trek a lot, you run, you walk. You just seem to have boundless energy. Often, um, which which came first? Was it your, you know, have you learned this from the ungulates? Or you know?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, we can't compare any of us to to these crazy ungulates if at all. I'd say, like the people. In these landscapes. Uh, you know, we, we're just a shadow of uh, the, the, the crazy sort of abilities that these mountain ungulates have. I mean, it's incredible seeing some of these ungulates, like the algali that I mentioned, right? Like, yes, there is the whole idea of being uh, having endurance in the mountains, having to trek and whatnot, but just the sheer aspect of the weather and co- being like out in the cold is incredible we've seen Argali at, the, at like 4,500, 5,000 meters. So that's like five kilometers straight up from the sea floor, uh, from uh, the, the level of the sea, up high in the winter at minus 40, just sitting, right? And in these landscapes, you also have herders sometimes, you know, just with their livestock going out there. So I think I think people like that really inspire me. And I think, you know, we're just, uh, we're, we're always gonna be a shadow of both of them, <laughs> really. <laughs> Uh, But yeah, we try our best, I mean, to to study the ungulates, you have to try and be like one uh, as much as possible. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, that's what I would say about that.
0: So tell us also a little bit more about your research now, because you've been there for a while. And just like you're saying, it's mind boggling that there are species that are able to sustain themselves, reproduce, stay active at those high altitudes, at those temperatures even, and these are herbivorous creatures that rely yeah, yeah. on vegetation for food and you don't have vegetation there for most of, uh, yeah. for so many months in the year. So what is yeah. happening in that system, you know, and where does your yeah. research fit into it all?
1: You know, it's such a great question because again, when some of my friends and colleagues come, right, they'll, they'll ask or we will we'll show them, you know, oh, this is where, you know, you'll find a herd of an Argali or a blue sheep, which is a mix of a, a sheep and a goat, actually, it's called barrel as well. Um, you know, we'll be like, oh, this is the perfect place for them because, you know, look at these beautiful pastures and they'll go around and be like, where is the pasture? You know, because these are high mountain, almost desert systems, right? Semi-arid, arid systems. And as you rightly said, you know, they're very low in terms of their primary productivity, Right. Uh, What that means is basically very little vegetation out there, uh, very little sort of uh, access to resources, even like water. Like, you know, in the winter, for example, there's very, very little water because everything is frozen. Uh, But uh, just coming back to my own research, I mean, there's a lot of research going on with the larger group that I'm working with. uh, So I'll get to that in a second. But I've really been interested in this whole axis of disease transmission. Uh, between wild ungulates and domestic ungulates, uh, particularly sheep and goat. As I said, you know, the the mountain ungulates that I work with, they're the wild ancestors to the domestic ungulates, particularly the, the sheep and goat. So because of that relatedness, there is a chance of disease spillover between the two. So, and that's been really, really understudied across like Central and South Asia. I mean, I would say across the world in general, but particularly in the mountains of Central and South Asia. And we have some of the highest mountains in Central and South Asia, the Himalayas, the Hindu Kush, Karakoram, so on and so forth. So I've tried to dwell into that because I feel um, that's very important for wildlife conservation. Uh, in the from the aspect of, as you rightly also said, right? Like these are resource-limited systems. So any amount of disease on top of that can really be detrimental to these ungulates. So we've tried to, to look into that. But because these spaces are also where you have, albeit in low density, people and their livestock. That question also then becomes important for their livelihoods, for their livestock health. So I've really enjoyed delving into that. Uh, We've sort of uh, found some really interesting new uh, information where we see there is some disease transmission between the two. But we've also sort of been working with herders and doing some some sort of uh, modeling work to understand, okay, if we have some interventions like vaccination or some medicine when can we intervene and for how long for it to be effective so those are the kind of things that i've been thinking about uh, really and i'm into the future i'm thinking more along the lines of sort of the whole holistic one health view which is about integrating people's health wildlife's health ecosystem health and just sort of looking at it more holistically but apart from that there's some really interesting work that my larger team does uh, around sort of predator-prey interactions, you know, because these landscapes, which most people will know them as are snow leopard landscapes, you know, snow leopards take all the limelight. uh, You know, I I think they're a great species, but I think the ungulates are better and more uh, charismatic. But yeah, we try to understand, you know, uh, how these interact, you know, how the predator and the prey interact. Um, There's also some really interesting sort of social aspects. around ungulates and mammalian assemblages in general here around folklore, around people and uh, wildlife relations. So there's a whole mixed bag of um, sort of different research work going on. uh, And I'm excited to dwell more into that, uh, into the future. Yeah.
0: I'm so glad you brought up the snow leopards as well, because that was also going to be one of my questions that, you know, A lot of people who end up working in these landscapes are probably attracted to it because it's a snow leopard landscape. And it's this really charismatic species that is the logo of, you know, large wildlife conservation NGOs, or they're often the flagship species for the Himalayas. And um, yet you do tend to work with the uh, quote unquote prey species, which is, I feel doesn't do them justice, right, you to club them all into just calling them prey species. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but and all, but also this is becoming a landscape that's a lot more accessible to tourists and people in yeah. general, right, who are not from this area. Um, Like while I've never really done any firsthand research in this area, Ladakh was one of the Mm -hmm. first places when I was really young that I got to, I was fortunate enough to do an internship there. And I remember at the time when I was visiting Ladakh, I would barely see Mm -hmm. anybody apart from the local communities or those who are properly from the land. And now it's just teeming with uh, tourists, even in the winter, which I feel at one point was unheard of. Um, how has that been affecting this whole system the fact that snow leopard tourism is becoming a thing and the fact that it's anyway you know really hard for the entire ungulate community to function in this place but they're probably getting less and less attention now
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean just to answer before I answer your question I just wanted to share a thing that probably all ecologists around the world would agree with me when I say you know when people work with like big charismatic species like snow lepers they'll they end up actually working with maybe their feces or their hair because you know those are the kind of things you have access to in mm. the wild <laughs> and then there is a running joke within our team that if you're lucky to work with let's say the prey species the ones that I've been mentioning we end up actually probably working with like the livestock or some sort of pasture related things because again you know these are species that are so hard to to sort of see and access so that's that's always like a uh, sort of like a (laughs) a joke that goes around but yeah so so to answer your question I mean there's so many layers right like for example I'm currently in Ladakh I mean uh, and there's lots of tourists that are flowing in as the as the summer comes comes into play but then there are these areas where let's say the tourists go to you know spot a but just within like 20 minutes of spot a you'll have places that have very very infrequently being visited by anybody but the global community and that's the nature of some of these trans himalian landscapes but i do want to mention that that doesn't mean that they are like quote-unquote pristine or untouched and things like that because local communities especially herding communities have been using these areas have been living in these areas for millennia i mean there's some really lovely literature from from sort of, uh, sort of sociology and sort of the social sciences in general that looks at you know, use of these spaces by people. So, so people have been here for a long time. And this dichotomy, I think I really want to sort of uh, uh, bring to our listeners that you know even though tourism is increasing a lot, because these landscapes are so vast and so sort of inaccessible in many parts, you do have places very close by where you will know, still have very little uh, access by uh, people that are not local. But um, having said that, you know, there are certain places across the Trans-Himalian arc in India that are really rapidly increasing the tourism. Uh, the, the star there is the snow leopard. You know, there are places in Ladakh, there are places in Spiti in Himachal where you didn't even think that, you know, wintertime would be a time where anybody from outside would visit. You wouldn't imagine that, you know, that place would have cell phone connection. I remember, I remember four or five years ago in our base camp in Kibber, we would have like a wall, literally just a wall where we would put a cardboard with the shape of a phone. Uh, So we had to place it exactly there to get like one bar of reception to then call somebody. Right. Today, from that very village, you can have like 4G internet and video calling, which is is great. You know, it connects, connects the world, but you can see the rapid change between, you know, four years ago till today in terms of the technology. And that's the same with roads, for instance, you know, some of these areas are, most of these areas, in fact, are border road regions, road infrastructure has increased again, like in 2008, I think was the first time I drove from Srinagar to Leh and it took us like a day and a half. Like we had to go to Kargil first, you know, sleep there, then drive up, you know, it was just horrible. The road was horrible. There were like, uh, sort of, uh, checks along the way and this and that <clears throat> and whatnot. Today, I could leave at like six, seven in the morning and be in Leh by four, you know, have a cup of tea in Leh by four. So connectivity has increased, uh, as well. Um, and that's allowing tourists to flow in. Um, I think there are some really interesting aspects of that. Like there are stories where local communities have really grabbed this opportunity by the neck, you know, formed cooperatives, uh, and that sort of like deal with this inflow of tourism. Uh, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, it's just, uh, exposing the world to the beauty of that place, uh, and of that, species in particular, snow leopard, I mean, in Kibber, if you go in winter, like, now there's a running joke that everybody sees, like, mating snow leopards, whereas, you know, getting a mating snow leopard shot four or five years ago was like a BBC level thing, right? Like, nobody would imagine that. But in Kibber, because there's so much knowledge about, you know, the, the movements of the snow leopard, that that's uh, very possible. But interestingly, in Kibber, at least, uh, this is in Spiti, uh, that's also shown a light on the ungulates, uh, because Kibber, you have a lot of blue sheep and a couple of herds of Ibex. So people really get exposed to these animals. I've seen photographers, tourists not know what this is. You know, uh, there's a very, uh, again, a very funny sort of, uh, story They're just down the road in Le, where I am currently there's this sort of Ibex choke it's called, right? Like the Ibex is a symbol of the army and people many, many years ago, they would call it Bakri choke literally like goat choke. Right because of the influence of tourism and knowledge and people just going out there, seeing these animals, talking to people. Now they call it Ibex joke or Skin. Skin is the local name for Ibex. So these small anecdotes uh, are not necessarily bad. But yes, I think uh, it does worry me sometimes just the the sheer number of people that come into these areas with tourists comes in requests for certain things, amenities. There's a certain way that a trans-Himalayan you know, family would live like a Ladakhi family or a Spitian family, you know, generally you don't have, you know, flush toilets in the winter because everything freezes, right? You have dry toilets, but then with tourists come demands for certain things. Uh, so yeah, that that does worry me, but I feel like it's something uh, that the communities have to really sort of push for, you know, the, the future that they want. And I think in certain areas we see that happening. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, and I just hope uh, that every tourist that comes in to all, all these places also thinks about some of these things uh, because these are very fragile landscapes, definitely to be in. So yeah
0: lots to think about there <laughs> i think even anyone who's you know listening in and who's considered going to himachal or ladakh for a quick vacation you know it's good to keep these things in mind and be mindful of the uh, environmental impact of some of the things we're doing and the exactly. we are requesting um yeah definitely there's so much uh, like you said so many layers to these problems and clearly some exactly. of it also does benefit the researcher and conservationist community because we also use these roads. We make use of, I mean, the whole fa- the fact that you and I are able to get on a video call while you're sitting here, uh, sitting there in field is also a testament to a lot of that, right? So absolutely. yeah, yeah. I think um, it's good to use these things as long as they benefit everyone uh, properly and ethically. Um, exactly. Yeah. So also, you know, you mentioned a lot about just the culture, right, of how people Mm -hmm. live in a lot of these different landscapes. And I think it's really interesting to think about that a little more, especially with you, because the entire Himalayan landscape isn't just contained to India right I mean it's trans boundary it it, these kind of landscapes are so vast that you really can't contain them within political bounds and uh, so and I know that you have also traveled to many countries in uh, pursuit of these species and to look at different kinds of ungulates that you find in different areas. So can you talk to us a little bit more about, you know, just having gone even beyond India and working yeah. in yeah. ecological systems, but maybe very different social situations?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's something very interesting because most of these mountain ungulates, as I call them, uh, both their mountain habitat, as you said, and themselves, they are very transboundary. For instance, um, the Asiatic ibex that we study here in uh, trans in India is found across the central sort of Asian mountain range. You know, you find them in the Tian Shan in Kyrgyzstan, you find them all the way in Mongolia, you know, so they're, they're ubiquitous, right? Um, so just, I think it's just super fascinating to see uh, what sort of interactions people have with them across this space. I've been very fortunate, as you rightly said, to sort of work not only in trans in India, but in Central Asia, in the Tian Shan, in Kyrgyzstan, a bit in the Pamirs, in in Tajikistan, and also a little bit in Mongolia. Um, what I want to say first, though, and I think this is super interesting. So, the mountain ungulates were called like the mountain monarchs by the renowned sort of conservationist biologist um, George Shaler, because you know the monarch part comes from the fact that they have these beautiful horns, right? Like these different horns. Uh, um you know all all, all different anglets have different horns but in ladakh for instance uh, and even in kashmir they have local names for the group for instance in ladakh it's called ridak which literally means mountain king or you know mountain uh, monarch actually so so if you look at it like these natural uh, sort of associations were there in these places before you know and someone like george hall really like cemented it for us in the english language for instance or in the modern way of uh, Commenting them, but yeah, so people have already uh, been associating with these species, you know. From that point of view, they were always majestic. They were always sort of uh, looked at, uh, you know, with this with this awe-inspiring uh, sort of feeling. What I found uh, interesting is then different names that people use, right, and how similar they are with geographies. So, for instance, uh, the markhor, which is like a wild goat, again. Uh, It's only found in Kashmir in India, the Kashmiri name is room savage, which basically means like, you know, like, um, hairy goat, you know, because they have like these long, hairy, you know, bodies uh, that almost touch the floor. So people have the folklore about how, you know, it like the hair touches the floor and you know, all of that. So you can really, uh, they might not know what a marker is, but they might know what like hairy goat is. But when I went to Tajikistan, again they're very descriptive. So I just find it very interesting how people describe species, right? For us, a markhor is markhor or Capra falconeri is the scientific name. But then, yeah, Kashmir, as I said, in in Tajikistan they call it bozi parma shop, which is uh, Dari or Farsi for uh, you know like a, a corkscrew horned goat. So it's very descriptive again, which I think is very similar to how we have English names for birds, right? So they don't have like these similar names. So I found it super interesting what they call species across. Uh, Again, it's the same for for the ibex. Uh, In in Kyrgyzstan, it's called the goat with like the the pointed horns, for instance, right? So these kind of uh, uh, ways people associate these animals uh, or have association with these animals, I think are super, super interesting. The other thing that I've really found fascinating is how, again, people look at perhaps conservation of these animals from a different point of view. Like in Central Asia, Mountain ungulate trophy hunting, for instance, is very big, right? And people have different opinions on it. I also have my own opinion on it. I mean, the whole idea of trophy hunting is, you know, you have like a big male with these massive horns. By the way, an Argali, which is also called a Marco Polo sheep in these uh, Central Asian regions, because Marco Polo apparently was the, uh, was like the first, not the first, but like, you know, the explorer who saw them and wrote about them and sort of was in awe of them. Marco Polo sheep in the Pamirs can have horns that go to about 180 centimeters. So that's about six feet. So that's crazy, but they roll across, right? So they're massive horns. So people go to hunt them for their trophies, these, these horns. So that's sort of a, a system of conserving these species where, you know, you might have a trophy hunt, which is very, very expensive in terms of the licenses that is paid by a hunter. And then the money goes to the community is very common uh, in lots of Central Asian countries, even in Pakistan, for instance, for Markhol. But in India, where we work, it's completely banned. Uh, we don't have a, a sort of a trophy hunting based, community based trophy hunting conservation um, aspect at all. We have more a sort of, you know, uh people co-mingling with these species, uh, kind of a system, at least uh, where we work. So I think it's just fascinating for me to see how different people have different ways to not only interact with these species, but also attempt to conserve them. And even though for me, like, you know, I feel like it's so different that uh, how would one even think about conserving and killing a species, you know, and then conserving it. I th- I think the passion between the two. Systems is very evident for the species. So I think that's just fascinating uh, for me to see.
0: That's so beautiful and very interesting to hear about some of those uh, descriptive ways of interacting with different species. And definitely, I think it brings in so much perspective because I think definitely, you know, being born and brought up in India and then getting into the field of conservation in any way. You know, you have this unilateral view that hunting is bad <laughs> for any purpose, yeah. right? And, yeah. but that's not the case globally. And I think, um, yeah, when you first interact, when I personally first interacted with the idea of trophy hunting for conservation, it felt like such an oxymoron in my head, right? It didn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that's so true. That's very, very interesting to get that kind of perspective on the same species in so many different ways.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: So this actually, you know, brings me to another question, which perhaps is a little more personal, and Mm -hmm. a little bit removed from your research itself. But just wanted to talk a little bit about conservation optimism, because this is something that has become a large part of the work you engage with. And just, I think the messaging that you put out now into the larger community, uh, which is to just be more optimistic to f- take uh, notice of, you know, just the positive success stories that are happening and making sure it's not all doom and gloom. But that is hard, of course, yeah. right? So, um, how did you first start engaging with this idea? And what is it that you do now on a more regular basis to kind of keep that going and putting that message across?
1: No, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Ishka. I mean, The whole idea with conservation optimism in general uh, is, as you said, you know, it's, it's not to say that everything is okay in the world, especially in the world of conservation, but it is to acknowledge that there are challenges, difficulties, failures, but in amongst all of that, in amongst this mosaic of, you know, a really tough sort of reality, there are some stories that inspire you to take action, uh, inspire you to sort of, uh, you know, say, okay, this is, this is worth doing. Um, And that could be, quote unquote, a success, or it just could be a community to sort of, you know, uh, be part of. Uh, So that's really what conservation optimism for me is. uh, And that's why I sort of abide by its ethos, I, I guess. I mean, for me, working in these landscapes has really made me think a lot, right? Like, you are in very, very remote areas for a long period of time. And again, when I say all of this, like I come with a lot of privilege, right? Like I am from a good well-to-do family. Like I can leave the sort of, you know, the remote areas of Ladakh or Spiti or Central Asia anytime and go back to my house, right? Like, so I come with a lot of privilege. But so when I'm saying a lot of these things, I'm talking about all the different sort of local field champions that work here, you know, we call them field assistants, but they're more than that, right? Like people who live here, work here, people, uh, the herders that live here, and so on and so forth. So I'm really like talking from their perspective. But yeah, like, living and working in these landscapes is very, very hard. It's isolating, both from a mental health perspective, but also from a physical health perspective, you know, you're walking long hours, harsh weather. And, you know, you have instances where you might have a snow leopard attack, a herder's livestock, for instance. And in fact, just a couple of days ago, we heard somebody lost 96 of his uh, sheep and goat out of 102 to, a, to an attack by snow leopards and wolves, I think it was. So when you hear things like that, you know, you're like, okay, nothing can be done here. Nothing can be done here. But then what really, and I don't want to romanticize this, but like, oh, I've seen this like courage in mountain people to really, you know, find something out of nothing, literally like, especially in these trans-Himalian areas where, as you, we said in the start, like these are barren landscapes, but people still go out with their livestock, right? So they will find something to do, even in that uh, position of desperation. The herder, I spoke to him a couple of days ago, who lost 96, he said, oh, but I still have six, you know, if I get something for those six, I can rebuild that. I mean, this is despite them having, you know, obviously they'll have uh, sort of like a like a little bit of an anger with the with the, the the predator, and we need to deal with those situations. But the willingness to continue, I think that really gives me a lot of courage. The people I work with in Ladakh, I mean, they're relentless in their pursuit. Sometimes it takes like a couple of days to get to a village, but they will be thinking about the herders that they need to engage with. You know, the herder might have lost again a livestock to, to, to snow leopards or things like that. But these people on the ground, you know, they're relentless to go there and do something so that really gives me a lot of hope you know and for me it's not as black and white as success and failure it's about connecting with people at the end of the day uh, you know be it people on the ground people in your community in conservation at large and I, that really inspires me so i'm so that's my that's my two cents on conservation optimism right like things are always going to be hard uh, the mountains make it harder sometimes you know with everything but when you see that people are living that reality with you I think that's that's great. If you can do something better, uh, that's 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 fine. But just the fact that you have somebody there uh, together with you, I think that really is very inspirational for me. Um, and that's why I feel it's something that we need to talk talk a bit more about. Uh, it's not important to just romanticize things. It's okay to say things are not good. You know, if some herder in Ladakh has lost 96 livestock, he or she has lost 96 livestock, and that's a bad situation. You know, they might retaliate against the predator that's done that to them. And that's okay. But the fact that you can be there, have a conversation with them, and sort of, you know, acknowledge that that's a bad situation, I think that still is good. And then from that comes something positive. So I think those subtleties uh, is something that, uh, you know, both the mountains teach me but also conservation optimism. So yeah.
0: Thanks so much for putting that in perspective, Moni. Because I think there's also that misconception that conservation optimism is about just reckless and blind optimism, and that you know yeah. there is this. I think it sometimes also comes with a bit of baggage where a lot of people feel that it's just about not acknowledging the fact that there are bad situations and just about powering through and saying no, everything can, is going to be okay. But that's not yeah. really the case. And I think this is one of those situations where, in a way, it feels like it's closer to being realistic, being pragmatic, yeah. and just not allowing the system to get you down, basically, but not ignoring the system, which exactly. I think is is beautiful. And I think a lot more people should be doing that. And. And you're so right in drawing um, examples from those who are actively living in these systems regularly, rather than just, I think, the research community or those who come in from the outside to do conservation effort, because we definitely have so much to, to learn from these places. Um, I remember excellent. even... Uh, many years ago now, of course, but when I was doing my internship there, I was blown away by just the hospitality that I was uh, offered, you know, by people in such harsh winters, who seemed like they barely had enough food for themselves, but were looking after me like I was their own daughter, even though they would only known me for a day. And I was so blown away by this. And I remember asking a colleague of mine, what is it about this place that makes people so giving? you know and yeah. just so helpful without even having to think about it and she had an interesting theory about how perhaps it's just that the only way to survive is by helping each other and that's become part exactly. of the culture and I, I've always held that very dear to heart I think that's so beautiful
1: yeah yeah I mean, it's, it's so true that what you just said, Ishika, and just a very small story to illustrate that, I mean, wherever you walk in the mountains here in Ladakh or even in Kashmir uh, and larger parts of Central Asia as well, like you'll have, I mean, in Ladakh, we call them, I think they call them latos or different, uh, I mean, there's different names for it when, uh, depending on where you go, but you'll have these stone structures. So like, for example, on top of a mountain, you'll have like six or seven stones or five or six like sort of small stones piled up on top of each other. I mean, as a newcomer, you're like, oh my God, what is this? This is like some, somebody just put it there, you know, you just sort of don't really think uh, twice about it. But actually it's very beautiful because it's, what it basically is, is it's sort of an indication to another person to say that, oh, I have been here and I have walked through here. So basically if you keep seeing these latos, as we call it in a a certain part of uh, Ladakh, if you're lost in the mountains or if you don't know where you're going, it's sort of a communication by somebody who, you know has walked there who knows maybe a day ago maybe a year ago maybe 10 years ago i mean if those stones stay and i think that is just so wonderfully beautiful uh, i think you know that's the spirit with which both I, I mean linking back to conservation optimism but just generally working in this community i think that's the spirit really right i mean again in kashmir i remember last year uh, you have these seasonal movements of herders that come up to the mountains and then go to the plains so if you're not uh, or if you're there in these mountains, when they're not there, you know, they have these like traditional houses that they've built and they'll always stock them with like dried meat or in nowadays Maggi, for instance. And you can go into that house, you know, eat that Maggi or whatever, if you're there hungry without anything, but leave something in return. And I, and nobody will, will think that that's awkward. I mean, in Mumbai, where I grew up, like if I did that for my neighbor, like I would, Think twice, knocking uh, to, to knock on my neighbor's door and ask for water. But here, you could do things like this, and I think that just is a true sense of community. Uh, you know, saving species, conserving landscapes comes later. I think, right? I think that that sense of community, I think, is where what we all really need, in my opinion, right? And I think this this bit beautifully illustrates that, and that's why I love working with mountain people in these landscapes. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, on that very wholesome note, Muneev, I'm going to thank you for sharing these stories. I have loved talking to you. And uh, yeah, there's just so much to think about. I'm feeling oddly calm after this conversation. Um, <laughs> thanks so much. It's It's just wonderful to hear from you. And you're also somebody who is just constantly, you know, sharing his energy and enthusiasm. I definitely always feel very energized after talking to you. And And I know that you also influence a lot of people very positively through your work and uh, more power to you. I'm so excited for all that you still have coming your way. Um, Thanks so much for being here and sharing.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Ejikai. That's really kind of you to say all of that. But yeah, hopefully see you in the mountains very soon.
0: Nothing I'd love more. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Great.